I am often amazed at how sometimes the most numbskulled people can randomly vomit up absolute pearls of wisdom. This miracle most famously occurred in Shakespeare's Hamlet with the speech of Polonius. Shakespeare portrays Polonius as one of the most thick-headed characters in the entire castle of Elsinore. Nevertheless, the parting speech Polonius gives to his son Laertes is filled with erudite advice on the world's ways. Polonius thus says to his departing son, quote, Give every man thy ear, but few thy voice. Take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. Neither a borrower nor a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. This, above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow, as the night the day, thou canst not be false to any man. Farewell, my blessing season this in thee. Unquote. In my life as well, I've noticed how I can never really be sure whose words will stay with me years later. It certainly has nothing to do with that person's education, intelligence, or sophistication. When I was in college, for example, I was in a fraternity. One weekend every year, all of the alumni would come back and visit and party with all of us young kids. In general, we, that is, my fraternity brothers and I, made fun of the alumni who returned behind their backs. We recognized it as kind of sad and pathetic that guys in their 30s and 40s would return to campus to party with undergraduates. But one alum was particularly flagrant in this regard, and all of the current brothers and pledges knew about him. He was the guy who, even 10 years out of school, still acted like a college student. He played pranks on the freshman pledges, of which I was one. He was constantly decked out in our frat colors. He creepily walked up to girls on the dance floor and grinded up behind them when they weren't looking, plastic beer cup in hand. We all called him Mally, which may or may not have been his actual name. One Sunday morning, the fraternity house was reeling from the party the night before. Thousands of plastic red cups were strewn throughout the house, pretty much all of which still had beer in them. Broken glass littered the floor. It was nearly impossible to walk a few steps without finding your foot half stuck to the ground in a dried up puddle of spilled beer. I looked around at the mess, giant trash bag in hand. There was so much to clean up, it felt pointless to even start. It felt like an eternity would have to pass before the house would ever be tidy again. So, I stood there, frozen by the overwhelming sight of it all. It was then that I looked across the room to see Mally sitting there in a pink t-shirt, grin across his face. Of course, Mally came to entertain himself that morning, watching the freshman clean up the house. Nevertheless, he seemed to exactly read my mind at that moment. You don't know where to begin, do you? He asked. Nope, I said. No idea. Just start putting things away he said with a sly smile, his blue eyes glimmering for an instant in the morning sun. In my hazy memory of the moment, just after speaking these words, Mally seemed to slowly walk away and then vanish into the air, like when Shoeless Joe walked back into the cornfields in the movie Field of Dreams. But realistically, Mally could have just as easily trounced into the next room 
to draw a penis on someone's face with a sharpie who was still in a half comatose sleep. In short, I don't really remember what happened afterward, but I will never fail to remember these sage words. Just start putting things away. Just start putting things away. These five words offered more wisdom than can be found in stacks of self-help books. I remember these words whenever I feel overwhelmed by a project or task or assignment or goal which seems too gargantuan or too strenuous to ever complete. Instead of just throwing my hands upward in exasperation, I take the tiniest baby step toward my objective, and I find that, pretty soon, the frat house is miraculously clean again. You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 36, Zechariah 2. There are, of course, countless examples of how the Germans and the Jews were left with their own pile of rubble, their own very different pile of rubble, whether literal or symbolic, to clean up. And in both cases, they somehow succeeded, probably by following Malley's advice and just starting somewhere, anywhere. Those stories of recovery are rather famous, in some cases infamous. However, Beethoven also seems to have applied this approach when composing his symphonies. Beethoven's style is defined by his taking the tiniest motif, a mere collection of notes, and building upon that trifling arrangement until an entire symphony is achieved. This technique was known as the germ motive. Essentially, Beethoven found a germ which he then proceeded to let germinate. This technique can be heard most vividly in the Fifth Symphony. The entire first movement is built around this four-note motif. Perhaps you've heard it.
The entire first movement is built around this four-note motif. By itself, this motif is about as glorious as my picking up one lonely beer can from the floor and dropping it into the trash bin. A five-year-old child could have written this. To call this music would be like calling the house clean because I'd thrown one cup away. But Beethoven did not stop with these four notes. Beethoven squeezed, wrenched, and extricated as many combinations and permutations from these four notes as he possibly could. Apparently, Beethoven agonized over the music he wrote, making many drafts and corrections before finishing a piece. In this sense, he was completely different from Mozart. Mozart could compose an entire piece in his head before even setting pen to paper. Beethoven was, in this sense, by far the more human composer. He made sketches with various edits at every stage. He slowly and painstakingly put these pieces together in a process which could last months or even years. But by patiently and diligently putting these fragments together, just as I threw one beer cup after another into a giant black garbage bag with red handles, one of the great symphonies ever written was born. It went something like this. The Haftarah to the Parsha of Behaotecha comes from the book of Zechariah. The prophet Zechariah finds himself in an interesting place in Jewish history. The Jews had been exiled to Babylon when Jerusalem was sacked by Nebuchadnezzar and his army. The first temple, built by Solomon, was demolished during the invasion. This temple had been built around the year 1000 BCE and lasted about 400 years until the invasion by the Babylonians, circa 600 BCE. A future king of Babylon, Cyrus the Great, was one of the first world leaders to advocate human rights, even as early as the late 6th century BCE. 
and he decided to let the Jews return to their homeland in about 537. Zechariah preached about 17 years later. An entire generation had passed since Cyrus had let the Jews return to the land of Israel. Even after 17 years, even after a full generation, the Jews had still not rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. This failure to rebuild the temple after 17 years is what inspired Zechariah to try to fire up his nation through prophecy. Zechariah speaks to his audience largely through visions, abstract conglomerations of images and symbols in order to move the people. One of these images is of a figure named Satan, Satan. This was an incarnation of Satan long before the fire-breathing devil of Christian theology came on the scene. Satan's activity in this instance was to try to dissuade the Jews from even attempting to rebuild the temple. Here I quote Rabbi Hertz. Satan accuses the high priest Joshua and the people of sinfulness and that they are, therefore, unworthy to rebuild the temple. Perhaps a similar feeling arising out of their disappointments depressed the people. But Satan is rebuked by Zechariah, and the returned exiles are assured that their fears are groundless." Unquote. Just as Satan appears as a symbol in Zechariah's fever dream, we might also find the representation of the devil in our own modern lives, even though, of course, the actual devil is not there. For us, the devil is, in a sense, the absence of Mali. When we stand face to face with our own pile of rubble, our own seemingly insurmountable objectives, our own crushed temple, the devil comes to us so subtly that he does not even come at all. The devil, for us, is simply not to hear the whispered advice to just start throwing things away. Yoga often requires us to stretch and bend our bodies into all kinds of strenuous, sometimes even grueling positions. One example of these is surely chair pose, in which the knees bend, the core tightens, the thighs engage, and the arms stretch upwards. But undoubtedly, the hardest move in yoga is the move onto your mat. The decision to just grab your mat, no matter how dusty it may be, make some space for it on the floor, and roll it out, is the most grueling and back-breaking part of yoga. For the same logic, the hardest part of cleaning up a fraternity house is to just throw away that first beer cup. And the most Herculean task in writing music is just to assemble a collection of four meaningless, childlike notes. The first step is, of course, just the first step. To throw a yoga mat down onto the floor is obviously not, in any sense, to practice yoga. But nevertheless, at this moment, a titanic shift occurs. For it is with the first step that inertia transforms into an almost irreversible momentum.
Die Schlange? Tod? <lacht> 